0: It was a little tough yesterday while the snow was flying to see pictures on Facebook, everybody posting, here I am at the beach, here I am in Florida. Um, But you know, yesterday afternoon after the snow had fallen, it was still sitting on the branches like an inch thick and all of a sudden the sun came out and lit it all up. I thought, this is just gorgeous. It's just beautiful. So even in the midst of the snow in April, choosing thankful and celebrating uh, celebrating being here in Michigan. I'm happy to be back. I was gone the last couple of weeks. Um, I really missed being here at Ivanrest. I missed being here on Easter. Uh, last Sunday, Stacey and I were... We're out in Barcelona, Spain, yet, and we were right next to the big cathedral that's being built there. It's been—it was started being built in 1882, and uh, 134 years of building. They aren't quite done yet; they got a ways to go. And so Saturday, we toured the, the La Sagrada Familia—they call it—and it was a spectacular, huge cathedral. And we thought we better—we gotta worship there on Sunday. Who? How often do you get a chance to, to worship there on Easter Sunday? So we walked over there Sunday morning on Easter to worship at the cathedral and found out they don't worship in the big cathedral. That's still open for tourism all Easter Sunday. You can be a tour and pay your way and go. Instead, they have their Catholic mass down in the crypt in the little dungeon-like section in the basement of the cathedral. So we sat through, through a Catholic mass down in the basement with tourists still walking all around us you know, while you're worshiping there, walking all around, and it really wasn't that exciting. And later that afternoon, I thought, ooh, Ivanrest is starting right now. I wish I was there. So it's good to be back here and worshiping that Ivanrest back at home where it feels like home. But I did decide then, since, um, since I kind of missed out on the, the celebration of Easter here, that we're not gonna leave Easter behind for a couple weeks yet. Um, We're going to stick with Jesus' death and resurrection journey for a couple more weeks. Some of you have been here, were here last fall. We did a short series called Villains of the Bible, and we often look at all the heroes of the Bible, but we we spent four weeks looking at villains, most of them from the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to spend this week and next Sunday looking at the villains who show up in Jesus' death and resurrection story in the Easter a journey because there's plenty of some obvious villains throughout the story, and there's some more subtle ones as well. And we're going to spend our time this morning with three of them as kind of a package deal because our villains for this morning are those men who, in Jesus' death and resurrection journey, had the opportunity to stand in judgment over Jesus and ended up making his death a reality. So take out your Bibles with me and turn to Luke 22, the very end of Luke 22, and then almost all of Luke 23, page 1023 in the Bibles you have in front of you, Luke 22 and 23. Because in this passage, we're introduced to the three men who had the power to stand up for Jesus. They had the power to speak truth in the face of lies. They had the power to do what is just and right, and all three of them failed. All three of them have a hand in the death of Jesus. Here in this section, we get to meet Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod Antipas, who are all really asking the very same question. They're the ones with the power and authority, and and Jesus is placed in front of them, and they need to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And what do we do with him? On this Friday morning, Jesus is arrested on Thursday night. On this Friday morning, these three men are, are tasked with the responsibility of figuring out who Jesus is and what to do with him. And each of them, in that process brings their own baggage, brings their own perspectives, bring their own purposes, which color their vision and cloud their judgment, and ultimately send Jesus to the cross. And I think it's important that we look at these three men in this story, that we look at these villains, because their task is really still our task today. It's your task today. Each one of us still needs to answer the exact same question that they had to answer. Who is Jesus? You need to discern that yourself. And our answer can't be the shallow, superficial Sunday school answer, yeah, yeah, here's the right answer, that I know what to give. It's an answer that needs to come from our lives, from our hearts, from, from the very core of who we are. You need to answer that question, who is Jesus? You know, it's, it's really stunning to see Jesus, Lord God himself, who willingly stands before these three men in judgment, says, go ahead, you answer the question. Go ahead and judge me. And in the same way, Jesus stands before each one of us still today and says, I'm going to stand here in front of you. I'm not going to force you to believe in me. I'm not going to force the truth upon you. I'm not going to force you to recognize me as God's son. I'm going to let you judge me. Here I am, who do you say that I am? And you know, each one of us comes with our own perspectives, with our own baggage, with our own biases. And we very easily could condemn him again, just like these three men did. We very easily could be the modern day villains of this story being lived out again and again and again. Or we can get it right this time. So let's look back at at their process of discerning their answer to the question of who is Jesus. All three of these men show up together in the end of Luke 22 and most of Luke 23. Because Luke gives us a play-by-play of Jesus' highly unusual and most likely illegal trial. Remember, he was arrested on a Thursday night, but the law said that that you can't have a trial at night. It had to be during the day. So, Early Friday morning, as soon as the sun peeked above the horizon, the trial begins. And this trial had several stages. It had multiple judges. It had changing accusations. It had multiple underlying motivations of people. It had a rushed timeline as they're trying to get it done, get them dead and off the cross before the Sabbath started. It it was a strange trial altogether with three judges who all saw Jesus from a different perspective. So start at verse, uh, verse 63 with me, so you get the, just the whole picture of what happened after Jesus was arrested. So it starts on Thursday, at Thursday night, throughout the night. It says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak... The council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be, a, to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you? the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For a third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So phase one of Jesus' trial here begins with the religious leaders of Israel early on Friday morning, right? Verse 66 tells us that, that even though Jesus' trial began right at the break of dawn, remember it's illegal to start a trial at night, so right at the very break of dawn, even though it started very early in the morning, everyone was there. This this wasn't unlike Washington, D.C., where not everybody shows up for every vote of Congress and every meeting. Sometimes people showed up. Sometimes Everybody was here for this one. The teachers of the law, the elders of the people, the chief priests, they all showed up together because nobody wanted to miss this one. This was a big deal, this Jesus. Now, you have to understand with this gathering that we call them the religious leaders of Israel but they were a lot more than just leaders of the church, of leaders of the temple. They were also political leaders of the day. In fact, in some respects, that ended up being their primary role was the political leading of the nation of Israel. You see, remember, Israel is is under occupation by Rome, right? They're part of the Roman Empire, and and they were one of the few, one of the very, very few conquered nations that was allowed to keep their own religion. Most often, the Roman emperor would declare that, that when you got conquered, you worship the emperor, and you take on all forms of worship that we say are okay. But the But the the Israelite people, the Jewish people, were so stubborn. They held on so strongly to what they believed, their one God, Yahweh, that Rome finally gave in and said, okay, we'll let you keep your worship. We won't bring images of the emperor into Jerusalem. We won't bring them into the temple. You can keep your worship. But it was always kind of a tentative thing, because at any time, Rome could, could pull that deal off the table, and they could prohibit worship of their one God again. And so, and so these religious leaders both had to negotiate church things, temple things, religious things, and also had to negotiate this, this political realm with the, with the Roman emperor, making sure they pushed hard enough to maintain their religious freedom, but not so hard that Rome came and squashed them. So they came with both a religious perspective and a political perspective here. And the judge and jury, the ultimate deciding person here, was the high priest, a man by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. They had two political parties, just like we do, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and Caiaphas was a Sadducee who held the position of high priest from the year 18 to the year 36. Interesting for those who are interested in politics, the Sadducees were known for being blunt and rude in whatever they did. They they were blunt, they were rude, they said whatever they needed to say to get done whatever they needed to to say. So you can picture Caiaphas as kind of the Donald Trump of the day. He's going to say what he wants to say, he's going to do what he wants to do. Right? And yet you have to always also remember that as high priests, from the religious perspective, what he said was the voice of God. It wasn't a, he didn't speak with a human voice. In their eyes, he spoke the words of God himself. But when it came to Jesus, Caiaphas was less interested in discerning God's justice, in being truly God's voice. And he was more interested in pursuing what would be best to protect his position and to protect the people of Israel from the Roman government. You see, Caiaphas was a realist when it came to this trial. When he judged Jesus, it was not about truly determining what's right and what's wrong. It wasn't about seeking justice for this man standing in front of him. And it wasn't about discerning truth We get to see Caiaphas back, a good picture of him back in John chapter 11. Let me just set the stage for you. In John chapter 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And Jesus, his popularity is at an all-time high. The people love him, and the rulers, the religious leaders, are scared. And so they gathered together to talk about what they're going to do about Jesus in John chapter 11. Listen to this. I'm just going to read five verses here. It says, Therefore, because Lazarus was raised from the dead, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, so many of the same people who are together now at the trial, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're more concerned about politics, about Rome, than about truth. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up you know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Okay, so with, with, you hear it there, with Trump-like tact, Caiaphas insults them all and says, you guys don't know anything. You're just being dumb here. And then he, he declares the plan of a realist. Says you sacrifice whoever you need to sacrifice to get them out of the way to accomplish your purpose. That's what you do. So if Jesus isn't going to play by our rules, if he's not going to be an asset to us, then we're going to get rid of him. Then we get him out of the way. That's how it works. Use him if he can use him. Get rid of him if he can get rid if he need to. Sounds pretty harsh. And yet, that realistic that realist perspective isn't really that foreign to you and to me and our lives today. Because we often stand from the same perspective as Caiaphas. Maybe not that blunt, but we live that way. We, we use Jesus for our own gain, right? When He serves our purposes, we're right there with Him. When He fits our plans, Absolutely, I'm on his side. But when he's a threat to my plan, when he, he's a threat to what I want, then I easily dispose of him, set him aside. And there's obvious places where we can see realists who are using Jesus for their own purposes, Right? In the news often, you read about pastors who are using Jesus to advance their own own careers or their own financial, you know, lining their own pockets. They use them for what their plan, they get rid of them every other time. You can read about politicians who, who wave their Bibles and say, I love Jesus when it might get them some votes, but their lives sure don't follow it, right? You can Maybe you know some business leaders, some businesses that proclaim we're a Christian company, I'm a Christian leader, and yet you look at how they run their company and some of the choices they make, and you think, really? It's easy to point to others and say, yeah, you're using Jesus when it works for you, and then you're getting rid of him when when it doesn't. That's not right, but we all do it. At one point or another, we all do when it's convenient to leave him behind, we leave him behind, right? When, when we want forgiveness and grace, we're right there with Jesus. Give me forgiveness and grace. Thank you so much. And then when he says, now turn around and forgive those who hurt you. Give grace to those places and those people where you hurt deeply. Then we say, you know what? I don't think so, Jesus. I'm going to leave you behind there because that's too, I'd rather, I'd rather get even than give grace. We leave him behind when it doesn't fit our plan." When Jesus promises us us blessing and wealth and as long as our financial status is solid and growing stronger, we claim him. Yep, we're with you, Jesus. But when he commands us to donate, when he he tells us to sacrifice, to give generously, eh, no thank you, I'm gonna leave him behind. When life is easy and comfortable, we claim Jesus. When he gives us blessing after blessing. And yet, when he calls us to be uncomfortable, when he calls us to discomfort, to to give up an evening to serve the homeless, when he calls us to change careers maybe in the middle of a successful career that we love, when he calls us to love somebody who isn't very lovable. When maybe he asks us to to move far away for his purposes or to support someone else who's doing that. When he says, I'm not going to take the illness away, but I'm going to call you to be faithful through it. Well, then it's easier just to get rid of Jesus, isn't it? He doesn't serve my purpose. That's not the life I want. I'm leaving you behind. Who is Jesus to the realist? To the realist, he is someone who's there to help serve our purposes and help promote our plans. And that's exactly who he is for many of us, for all of us at some time or another. We use him when we can. We use him for what we want. And we conveniently dispose of him when he doesn't serve our purposes. Just like Caiaphas. And that's phase one of the trial. Phase two. Phase two of Jesus' trial is held before the Roman authority. Right? Caiaphas and the religious leaders escort Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor of the territory, because, because they wanted Jesus dead, and only the Romans could execute somebody. Only the Romans could sentence them to death. So Pilate is truly the final authority here. He holds the ultimate power to either condemn Jesus or let him go free. And it's interesting in this story, as you catch it, it's pretty obvious that Pilate has no difficulty whatsoever discerning truth from error, discerning what is right, discerning what is wrong. He has no problem with justice, right? In verse 4, after weighing all the evidence, Pilate publicly declares to all the leaders, to the whole crowd gathered around, that Jesus is innocent. He's innocent of all the charges that they brought against him. He makes that very same declaration two more times. Verse 14 and at the very end, he says, there's there's nothing to these charges. Clearly, he is an innocent man. There's no doubt in his mind whatsoever that Jesus is not guilty, deserves to be set free. But like those religious leaders of the day, Pilate has other priorities and other perspectives. You see, Pilate's number one task as governor was not to get things right, was not to be a judge that discerns right from wrong, truth from lies. His number one task, as given to him from Rome, from Caesar himself, was to keep the peace, to maintain what they called Pax Romana, right? In the territory, in the kingdom of Rome, you must stay peaceful. Your job as governor is to keep the subjects loyal. No riots, no rebellions. You stop it when it first starts. No ways to disrupt the empire. empire the last thing we want to hear about Pilate is we don't want to even hear that there's anything going on in Israel. If you can stay silent in our ears, you've done your job. Keep the peace. And you can do whatever it takes. So there's times when Pilate, when there was inklings of a rebellion, the military would come in and just kill them all. And there's other times when, when it took some political savvy to keep the peace. That's his priority. And what worked for Pilate in this instance was to back down before the pressure of this angry mob and to sacrifice what he knew was true and right simply to keep the peace. He chose the cowardly way out. He knew what was the right thing to do. He knew the path of truth and justice. He got that right. But he realized that if he was to do the right thing, it would come at an immense price. Right? The Jewish leaders who are already mad, standing in front of him, would be even more mad. They would be furious. And he knows that they're already threatening to start a riot If he lets this man go, that would threaten the peace that he's called to keep. And how big would this uprising become? It's all running through his head. Who knows? Maybe it would even be big enough to to reach Rome's ears. And if if Caesar found out that he can't keep the peace here in Israel, he's going to lose his job. He's going to lose his position. Is Jesus worth that risk? Is Jesus worth that cost? This one man. Who was Jesus the Pilate? He was a threat to his comfortable life. That's who he was. He was a disruption when the last thing he wanted was a disruption. And so he chooses to take the easy way out. He's willing to let truth and justice slide. Go ahead, you can have him. Go ahead, I'll sign the paperwork. Let's execute him. As long as it doesn't make any waves he won't stand up for Jesus. He won't defend him if it comes at a price. So he'll sacrifice Jesus to save his own hide, to keep his life safe and comfortable. And before we, you know, before we stand up, wag our finger at Pilate and say, what a horrible thing to do. We need to pause and look at our own lives again. Because we aren't all that different from Pilate, are we? How often... I'll well, look at myself. How often aren't I a coward when it comes to standing up for truth, when it comes to standing up for Jesus? Right, sitting here in this room this morning, it's, yeah, it's easy to proclaim the truth of Jesus. It's easy here to declare, "Jesus is my king. I'm going to shape my life by him. I love him. I'm going to stand by him." That's easy right here. But then we walk out of here, and it's a lot harder to do that in the hallways at school. It's a lot harder to do that in the office and at the factory, where things aren't, aren't lined up the way Jesus would line them up. It's a lot harder to do that in your neighborhood. How often don't we set the truth of Jesus aside because it's more comfortable? We back down that way. We back down from that truth because it won't make waves then. And we like our comfortable life. We like to be popular. We like to be accepted. We like the way things are. So we know what's right. We know what's true. We know what Jesus is asking us to do. And yet we don't stand up for him because, because that will disrupt the peace that will come at a personal cost. And so we throw Jesus under the bus at those times, just like Pilate did. We choose the cowardly way out. Who's Jesus? He's someone who's threatening to to disrupt the control and comfort of my life. That's who he is. And he's someone that we quickly abandon when faithfulness comes at a price. Finally, thirdly, as Pilate is searching for some way out of this predicament that he finds himself in, he sends Jesus to the third stage of his trial. Right? He's, he has stood before Israel's religious leaders previously. Now he stands before Israel's political leader. He's sent to Herod Antipas, the, the king ruling over the territory of Galilee, which is Jesus' hometown. So he has jurisdiction over Jesus. Let me tell you who Herod Antipas is. Not to be confused with his dad. His dad was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one we find in Luke 2 at Jesus' birth who's a a horrible person. He's the one who slaughters the babies in Bethlehem. But he is Herod the Great, building projects like you wouldn't believe, rules a kingdom like you wouldn't believe, when he dies, when Herod the Great dies, he divides his territory between four of his sons, four of the ones who he didn't kill because he killed a number of his own sons. And so the territory is divided between these four sons, and one of them is Herod Antipas, who gets the northern territory of Galilee and another area off to the east as well. But, but for our purposes, we're looking at Galilee, which is Jesus' hometown. So that's his territory to rule. He, he's not much better than his father. Herod Antipas is the Herod who chopped off John the Baptist's head. Okay, so we've seen him before earlier in the Gospels. And and so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. As as a local king, still under the authority of Rome, he has very little power, very little authority. But But Herod isn't looking for power and authority when it comes to Jesus coming to see him. Rather, he's looking to be entertained by Jesus. You see, he had heard about this Jesus wandering his territory, but he'd never had a chance to meet Jesus. And he was intrigued by all the miracles that he heard that this Jesus did. And he wanted to see a miracle. And so, verse 8 tells us that he's eager to have Jesus come, not because he wanted to truly discern who Jesus was, but because he wanted a show. He wanted to be entertained. He was glad to see Jesus show up. But he was highly disappointed when Jesus refused to entertain him. When Jesus not only refused to entertain him, but refused to even answer any of his questions. So Herod ends up entertaining himself with Jesus, right? His soldiers dress him up and they mock him and they ridicule him. They have a good time all at Jesus' expense. To Herod... Jesus is simply a a little sideshow. Doesn't really affect his life at all. Just a little entertainment to keep him busy for a while. And too often Jesus is still a sideshow in our lives. Yeah, we we aren't as blatant about it as Herod was. But there's moments when we aren't all that different from him. Sometimes it's on Sunday mornings, right? We come to worship to be entertained, right? Right? Sunday mornings are all about, you know, what songs do I enjoy? Is the sermon enough to hold my attention and keep me awake the whole time? Is the service to my liking or not? We come not to worship, but we come to be entertained. But that leaks out into all of our lives to some extent, right? Too often, Jesus isn't the core of our lives, it it, it isn't the heart of what we do. His kingdom truly isn't the heart and core. Rather, it's it's off to the side somewhere. His purpose isn't our primary purpose for living. God's kingdom isn't isn't our number one priority. Jesus isn't at the core. Instead, at the core of our lives is our career. Or at the core of our lives is our family, our kids, maybe our grandkids. At the core of our lives is our financial well-being. At the core of our lives is our comfortable, safe lifestyle. Those things truly take center stage, and that relegates Jesus to a side stage, something interesting we pay attention to every once in a while, but not what takes top billing. And you know what? Jesus is never satisfied to be a sideshow in our lives. He deserves center stage. Who is Jesus? He is priority number one in life and in death. His priorities must be our top priorities. His kingdom must be our top concern. His purpose must be the driving purpose of our lives. Jesus will not share the stage with anything or anyone. He will not be. Our entertainment. Caiaphas and Pilate, Herod Antipas, they were all given the same task answer this question Who is Jesus? And they all got it wrong. They all missed the truth. But now their task is your task, and it's my task. You know, back in Luke chapter 9, chapters earlier, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he asks them, he says, who do people say that I am? And they, they share some ideas of who people are guessing Jesus is. And then I can imagine that he stopped walking, and he turned them around to look him in the eye, and he said, okay, now how about you? Who do you say that I am? I think Jesus is looking into your eyes and mine. He's looking at each one of us here this morning, eye to eye. He's saying, how about you? Who do you say that I am? I don't care about everybody else. I care about you right now. Who am I to you? Jesus submits himself to our judgment. Stunning that he would do that. He doesn't force us to believe. He doesn't doesn't force us to recognize him. He says, Here I am. I'm going to stand just in front of you and let you decide. Who do you say that I am? And this morning I want to challenge you to answer that question, not to me, but to Jesus. And if we're honest, if you're honest, if I'm honest, I'll have to admit that I don't always like the answer. I don't always answer like Peter did when Jesus first asked that question and Peter rose up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'd like to say, yeah, that's my answer every time. It's not. Sometimes we're like Caiaphas. We use Jesus for our own purposes, for our own plans, and we set him aside when He doesn't fit our plans. Sometimes we're like Pilate. We know the truth, but the price is too high, and so we throw Jesus under the bus rather than be obedient to him. And sometimes, like Herod Antipas, he's our entertainment, right? Adds a little bit of spice to our lives, but really doesn't have any power. Jesus won't settle. He won't settle for anything less than Lord and Master, Messiah, Savior. He won't settle for anything less until he is our one and only. So would you close your eyes with me, please? And we're gonna spend a few moments in prayer. But with your eyes closed, I want you just to imagine, picture Jesus standing Face to face with you, with a face full of love and grace and power, and it's just you and Jesus, and He's looking you in the eye, and He asks a simple question How about you? Who do you say that I am? And you get to answer, you need to answer. Lord Jesus, we're stunned and amazed that you'd stand there right before us. That you'd love us enough that you'd humble yourself before us and ask us that question. Who do you say that I am? And if we dare to be honest with you, Jesus, it would take a lot of confessing. We'd have to be honest about some very hurtful ways that we treat you as we use you for our own purposes, as we leave you behind when you challenge us, when you disrupt our comfortable lives, when we simply look at you as a sideshow to a life that we want to control, when we choose easy instead of faithful, Thank you for your patience, Father. Thank you for your love, Jesus, that you don't walk away from us, but you invite us to see you for who you really are. You invite us to answer the question that you are our Lord and Master, our Savior and Forgiver, that you are the lover of our souls. Give us the courage, Jesus, to answer with truth and to let that answer be our answer not just with our mouths and our minds but to be the answer that we proclaim with our lives, with the choices we make, with the day-to-day decisions we make, with the priorities that we set, the plans that we make, and the purposes that we pursue. May each one of those things answer the question. Who do you say that I am? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as the worship team comes forward? So we're gonna respond in song. We're gonna respond by singing what we believe. And it's my hope that as we sing what we believe, As we answer that question, who do you say that I am? We're going to do that with song. These words are more than just words on a screen, more than just words that go...